Hello, and welcome to the Craft Brewed Music Podcast, the official podcast of Craft Brewed Music, the app that streams better music for serious listeners. Here we explore and get to know the creators of that music. I'm Brian Horner, founder and curator of Craft Brewed Music, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host Aaron Stamen, a Craft Brewed Music artist. So it's our 10th episode already. That's hard to believe, isn't it? Wow. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's the 10 anniversary. <laughs> Was I supposed to get you a gift? You were. You were, and that did not go unnoticed. I think my last album went tin. I'll send you a copy. <laughs> <laughs> so on this momentous 10th episode, we have Lewis Levitt, a double bassist, founder of the critically acclaimed record label production company, creative agency Bright Shiny Things, uh, and a founding member of the string quintet Sybarite Five with Sami Merdinian and Sarah Whitney on violin, Angela Pickett on viola, and Laura Metcalf on cello. And we're going to start off by listening to a piece from their 2018 album Outliers. This is a composition by Sean Connolly entitled Jan's Flight. For craft brew music, I was drawn to your string quintet, Sybarite Five, um, for the reason I'm drawn to a lot of craft brew music's artists. It's not just one thing, you know. It's uh, it's classical, yet it also rocks, and it's got uh, flavors of folk and jazz and, and and lots of different things in it. And I was really excited because it is, you know, if we had to pick one, it's a classical group, contemporary classical group, and that was really exciting to find. Um, and you've also started a label, Bright Shiny Things. 
which uh, one of your artists, Mike Block, is another of our craft group music artists for the same reasons. And I'm curious about your aesthetic in general um, and how that's applied to Sybarite 5 and to the label, if, if that's different. Um, yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a valid question. I think that, you know, really, uh, I follow like the Duke Ellington principle, um, which is, I think he said there's good music and then there's all that other stuff. <laughs> so, um, you know, we just go, we just try to find the, the good music <laughs> and we leave all the other stuff on the, on the cutting room floor. Um, and so, so it really doesn't, it doesn't really matter what the genre is in other words from the music, you know, there's, it's going to be great jazz. There's great classical music there's great world music global music uh improvised music uh, iranian music i mean there's there's great stuff everywhere so it's our it's our job to identify that and uh, bring it out into the universe so when you're trying to find the, the the good music is that and there's five of you is that a uh, democratic process or uh, obviously some people that's subjective and some people are going to have different ideas about that yeah, you know, um, we only have one rule with the Sybarite Five in the in the ensemble and, or the band or whatever you want to call it. And that's, you know, we have to just play the music that we love. And um, we don't, it's not a democratic process in that, like, you know, you get together, we listen to, or we play through something, and then we vote. And then, you know, three, three, three members say, yes, we do it. Um, mm-hmm. We actually all have to be in agreement. Uh, it has to be unanimous choice that we want to play this music. Um, because we know that the, whatever we're going to do on stage or in the studio is going to be better if we all genuinely love the music we're playing. Mm-hmm. If you have like two people or three people in the group that kind of not into it, like that's going to show. That's not going to be. That's not going to be nearly as good. So we just don't mess with that. Um, now, that being said, there are a number of times when we've had, you know, maybe four people in the group really like this. One person doesn't, or they're not sure about it. Usually, that one person will take a chance. And they have enough respect for their colleagues to know, like, hey, look, if these other four people think this is really good, you know, maybe I should consider opening my mind and trying it out. And usually that, you know, that's usually successful. You know, it's usually a good way for us to grow and learn. Of course, sometimes, you know, it doesn't work out. Sometimes it's like, yeah, actually, we tried it and it's not a good fit. But, you know, the important thing is, is that we, uh, we we're able to get a good deal of music out there and uh, be able to kind of constantly explore and grow. Yeah. Well, and I think classical music, um, you know, like jazz or maybe maybe every genre term carries so much baggage and so many preconceptions. And, um, you know, if you're when you're putting as much out there as you are, how do you how do you broadcast or, or deal with the fact that you're different than what people might be expecting, particularly as you reach out to younger audiences? I mean, I think that's always a challenge. I think that, that, you know, that's, that's usually the challenge is that you're, you know, you know, you can, you can say you're so varied only so many times before it's like, (laughs) yeah, you know, you know, jack of all trades, master of none. Um, But, you know, we, we try to bring a a high level performance to whatever we're doing. We take it really seriously. So, and and I don't mean that in like a, I just mean that we, we take the music, the composition, the composer, the whole thing with a great deal of care, whether that's, you know, a new piece that's written for us by someone alive, or it's maybe it's a reimagination of a John Coltrane tune, or maybe it's, you know, a Radiohead tune that we're working on reimagining. We kind of take the same care that we would with like Beethoven or Bach or Mozart. We, we're going to bring that same care to any piece we're playing. 
there isn't a situation where it's, you know, like second class citizen, you know, whatever, that's just a Led Zeppelin song. So who cares? You know, mm-hmm. that's just not how we operate. If, if that's, if the song was like that, we wouldn't play it, you know? So it's really important for us to, to think about that and, uh, you know, work on things in, in that way. Um, you know, is it kind of a marketing nightmare? Yeah, sure. Of course. I mean, but genres now are so, there's so many genres and subgenres, and, you know, so many artists are doing what I think Chris Thiele said this. He said it very well, uh, like genre, genre hopping, not so much genre blending, but, you know, getting very comfortable with like their toes in another genre. So you see classical musicians putting their toes in improvised music and kind of stepping over here and checking that out, but still keeping one foot like firmly planted in whatever they're, you know, based in. I think that's pretty normal and pretty natural. And every, Every good musician I've ever met, especially the ones that get really up, you know, up to the top, you know, when they get to the top of their genre, they usually want to kind of break out and collaborate with other musicians in another genre. I mean, you know, a decent example of this is probably like Metallica. Like how much bigger could Metallica be in the world of heavy metal in that genre? Like not any bigger, right? Mm-hmm, like sure. that's as, that's like kind of it, right? Yeah. You're, you're, you did it, you did it. So yeah, so they're now they're playing a show with the San Francisco Symphony, you know. So that's that's how they're able to learn and grow and continue to get enjoyment, I presume, out of their performances and collaborating with other musicians. Most musicians I know, when they get to that that level, they just want to play with the best people and do the best performances possible. You know, Paul Simon's a good example of that with Y Music. Um, you know, there's a lot of there are a lot of people like that. So sure, um, yeah. I'm happy to see that. That's great. Um, uh, while I have a very uh, wide listening experience with Metallica, my uh, my uh, intensity of listening to European instrumental music of the last several centuries is not as deep. Uh, and so when I found out we were going to be interviewing uh, uh, a member of a, a string ensemble, I immediately felt that that welling up of uh, insecurity that uh, I did not have a uh, adequate knowledge of the canon. Uh, so uh, in order to correct that. And I told him we wanted to talk about every piece in the canon. Right. I, I knew Brian had that, that ideal. Uh, so I wanted, to, I wanted to live up to his expectations. Anyway, so I, I, was, started, I was familiar with string quartets uh, as being a more popular format. But I figured, like, oh, I better look into string quintets and see what the, what the, what the biggies are. Yeah, what'd you find? And, I found that, so yeah. let me know if you found anything. <laughs> well, the, I, what I found is that when they say a string quintet, they mean an extra viola or an extra cello, uh, but hardly ever uh, a bass. That's right, nailed Berlin. it. Except for that, <laughs> the, the, the one Dvorak tune was all right, though. That was that was good. Dvorak, yeah, Dvorak Opus seventy seven. If we want that's to get the really one. nerdy, G yes. major. That's the that's kind of it. I'm glad I mean, you said it, not me. Yeah, well, but, that was that yeah. was the one. Aaron, yeah. you're passing this test with flying colors. You know, you did a lot of re- a lot more research than I had done on Metallica. Uh, you know, I think. I think oh, we'll my, get back to your test. Yeah, my Metallica research ends with the uh, the Dotra, the Black Album. With the oh, snake. really? I think that that's uh, that's probably where it probably kind of stops. I don't know. Maybe a little after that, whatever. I, um, I don't want to offend anyone's Metallica sensibilities. That's where mine stops too. Oh, okay, uh, cool. But uh, if you go so, back further, we can get really nerdy on that stuff. But we yeah, <laughs> there's, there's like a, there's a whole situation there. Um, yeah. But you know, uh, yeah, 
I mean, this is yeah, this is a this is kind of the issue with with a you know without getting into like nitty gritty detail. Um, you know, if we want to talk a little bit more about genre and like you know classically what we do is considered chamber music, you know, in the classical canon or whatever you want to talk about. And what does that mean? Well, that's it's pretty easy to define. It's usually small ensembles, um, usually less than 10 players. Everyone's got their own individual part and there's no conductor. Okay. So, but the, the, you know, what's interesting about that definition is like, that's not too different than like a rock band, right? You know, you could make an argument that, chamber music and, and you know rock and roll or whatever you want to call it or whatever ensemble the beatles started or or led zeppelin is you know there's a there's a lot of overlap there right there's a lot of places where things kind of cross over you know small sure. groups four or five people uh, one person to a part to get back to to sybaride five the fact that the instrumentation that particular format of the quintet does not have a large classical repertoire was that by design so you kind of obligated to get contemporary uh settings for your ensemble you know at the beginning it was a huge problem right because if you want to compete with string quartets they literally have hundreds of pieces by the world's most famous best well-known composers beethoven brahms bartok i mean shostakovich everyone wrote quartets you know even verity wrote a string quartet um there's it's not the Verity second class, I mean, but he, you know, wrote mostly operas. So um, you have a, you know, Mozart quartets, Haydn quartets, lots and lots of repertoire you can play with a string quartet. As soon as you put the bass in there, as you said, there's one, maybe two pieces. So this was a huge problem for us at the beginning. But it turned out to be a real blessing in disguise because it meant that we had carte blanche. We could play whatever we wanted. There were no rules. Like with a string quartet, you know, you should really, you know, make sure you got your Haydn and then your Beethoven and your Brahms and then move on to Bart. You know, there's kind of like a cycle, which is not necessarily has to be done in a certain order, but there's plenty of repertoire. If all you want to do is that and Mendel's, you like, you could spend your whole life doing that, never play a contemporary string quartet and maybe not hit them all. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of repertoire. So we didn't have any of the baggage that comes with that. And uh, that's why we were able to, you know, create our own repertoire because we didn't have to get validation from you know quartets of the past saying oh but have you heard them play beethoven opus 131 mm -hmm. no because it doesn't exist so who cares <laughs> um you know um and then there was a lot of nate you know there's a lot of naysayers you know chamber music with a double bass that'll never work you know and um the you know i think that i think it works and i think that actually you know it's not just this ensemble but i would say that double bass now is a very desirable instrument to have in your chamber music ensemble. There's other groups like, yeah. you know, Project Trio or Time for Three. Um, you see the instrument in a more prominent position. I mean, the truth is that the the thing about double bass that's that's cool in this setting is that you know it allows it allows us to switch between genres very easily. It's a it's a connector. So double bass is in every genre of music. Okay, if you're playing in a symphony, yes. If you're playing in a bluegrass band, yes. Jazz combo, yes. Um, <laughs> country music, yes. Um, what do you uh, hill, uh, what, rockabilly music? Yes. I mean, I can't think of a, a genre of music that we operate in where double bass is in that rock and roll. You got a bass player. Um, heavy metal, there's going to be a bass player. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so therefore, if our ensemble wants to play some music that's outside of 
quote unquote classical realm um, or repertoire, it's not, it's a little bit easy for us because we have a base, you know, I mean. And so, so you're able then to obviously commission a lot of works. The, the outliers album as an example has several different uh, composers involved Um, yet it has a cohesive sound. And so is that, and I feel like your, your group has a cohesive sound even across, you know, all the other albums. Is that, uh, is there a thing you look for in a composer you're going to collaborate with? No, that's a good question. I mean, I think that the real answer there is that um, when we're looking for a composer to work with, we're looking for someone who's got like a true, unique artistic voice and that they're able to express that voice in a very focused way. Um, and that's compelling, right? So um, that's the most attractive thing about composers to us is when they have something to say. Um, their artistic statement is the most important thing. And then how do they communicate that? And uh, the more the more well done and the more focused that message is. One of our, our favorites, uh, Brian and I both uh, decided independently we wanted to, to play on the uh, the podcast was the Alamand pour tout, de, uh, tout le monde. Huh? Uh, I, I think it's just, it's a really exciting piece. It's accessible, it's technical, uh, and it's, it's fun to listen to. Yeah, well, that's written by a guy named Kenji Bunch, who's a violist and a composer, lives in Portland, Oregon. And uh, we all knew him from from his viola and also from his his music uh, composing. And uh, the way that the those pieces, those six pieces, came along is we actually had a little bit of a framework there, in that we commissioned. I don't know if you're are you familiar with the Bach cello suites? Yes. Sure. Okay, so Bach cello suites, right? Kind of a big deal, especially if you're a string player, classical music. You definitely know about the Bach cello suites. If you're a, a lay person and you've you've heard um, cello, it, you probably have heard the prelude from the first suite, which a lot of people just call the cello song. Um, mm. I think the the piano guys did a version of this and they called it the cello song and got like mm. 400 million views or something. <laughs> um, ridiculous <laughs> like that. Good for the amazing stuff. Um, but so this is like, right, so the Bach cello suites are, you know, to be quick about it, six cello suites, each move, each suite has got six movements, right? Uh, prelude, Allemande, um, I'm going to get into trouble here soon. Uh, Prelude, Allemand, there's a Sarabon, there are Bourrées or uh, Minuets, and a Gigue. I don't know if I left something out there, but there should be six. It always starts with a Prelude, ends with a Gigue. And what we want to do is commission, and us, we all are string players in Sibrite 5. We all play the music of Bach, and, and not just the cello suites, but the violin partitas also for the violinists out there, and the violists. And uh, we wanted to do something inspired by Bach. So we commissioned a suite, of six movements inspired by the Bach cello suites. And we let each composer just pick whatever movement they wanted.
Alamond is a is a French named dance. It's actually a German dance. It's weird, but um, so because you know Bach was German, right? But he named all these. They're all French names, right? Alamond, um, Sarabond, you know. Um, and the fun fact about the Sarabond is it was you know outlawed uh, during the Spanish Inquisition because it was just too sexy. That dance was just literally too sexy. Play it. Yeah, super sexy. No Sarabons allowed during the Inquisition. Um, I've heard that so, complaint about your track as well. Yeah, yeah, super. It's a big problem. We're people not going to play it today for that reason. No, people just <laughs> can't keep their clothes on. Another another one of my uh, my favorites on the, uh, the Outliers uh, album, and forgive me, I don't think I'm pronouncing it correctly. It's the final track on the, on the album. Uh, it's the okay. Jig- oh, 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 the Jig, uh, Jiggly. He kind of instead of doing a like a traditional jig or you know jig, um, which has got multiple spellings, he did like jiggly, you know, which is kind of a play on on this Russian car. He's Russian. The jiguli. Yeah, jiguli, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and it kind of uh, they had one when he was you know a kid, and the car kind of you know kind of very awkwardly just kind of puts along and kind of just. Oh, you know, I've been I've been in many a Jiguli. I, I know this car. Yeah, so that's what is inspired. So the jig is like a little bit off. You know, it's not like a normal right. three eight or six eight. Like it's you know, more compound meter and you know, it's off kilt. There are five five eight measures. It's you know, it's like the car. Just like the yeah. alternator on a Jaguli. <laughs> That's right. It's just like a little off. But you wouldn't, if it was on, you wouldn't like it. If it was working perfectly, you'd be like, this is terrible. Yeah, it wouldn't be authentic if it was. That's right. Was like so that. that's, you know. that's interesting because that, when I, listening to it, you know, I, I, as I admitted it early on in this interview that I don't have a, a, a uh, you know, a deep uh, listening background in the canon, but my one uh, string ensemble uh, uh, listening experience I have is, is Shostakovich quartets. 
Yeah. Because uh, I lived in St. Petersburg for a year and you could always go to a Shostakovich quartet for nothing when awesome. I was there. Um, and so, but this, this tune, uh, at least, uh, in terms of the melody and the kind of harmonic shifts really reminds me of those pieces. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Cause Lev is, is originally Russian. So he lives in New York now, but it's where his family's from. His, his father was a composer, musician in Russia. And, you know, it's funny you mentioned Shostakovich because that was like, I feel like Shostakovich is kind of like a gateway drug for a <laughs> lot of non-classical people to get into classical music. Cause he's, it's kind of like in Shostakovich, when I first heard it, I was like, this is like heavy metal. Yeah, this is like this is like the Metallica. If we go there again, of yeah, let's do it of classical music. Like this, this shit is really heavy, yeah. and um, you know. And if you learn more about Shostakovich's life, you understand very quickly why. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, yeah, completely. You know, totally. Yeah. We're going to take a quick intermission for a word from our sponsor, which is us. Craft Brew Music is a curated streaming service. It's the app that streams better music for serious listeners. Sometimes we hear that people want to hear more of the songs we play on the podcast. If you like what you've been hearing, you need to download the app and get a free trial. We'll help you discover music off the beaten path so that you become the person your friends turn to for recommendations, and we split our income with the artists. It's $5 a month or $50 a year, less than a latte. We're the Small Batch Streaming App, available at the App Store and at Google Play. Or to hear samples and find out more about us, visit craftbrewedmusic.com. And so then, in a perfect example of the diversity that is Sybarite 5, you've got these new works, you know, album like the Outliers album, and then you've got everything in its right place where you reimagined uh, the music of Radiohead. And uh, I think I read that one of the challenges that appealed to you guys was to recreate on, a, on your acoustic instruments the elect, electronic sounds in their music. One of the tunes we loved was Paranoid Android. really nerdy way we like the idea of making electronic sounds without plugging anything in you know how can we recreate this weird electronic sound from the radiohead song by using our 200 year old acoustic instruments and um what can we do acoustically to make this sound that was like a really cool challenge for us and it was a lot of fun it was also like um you know, I think we were, you know, making a little statement that, A, you don't have to play the instruments the traditional way all the way um, forever. That's not the only way that these things can be played. You know, just like, you know, guitarists work on their sound and find new sounds through electronics and processing and effects and different types of pickups and string and so forth and so on. 
um, you can create sounds, new sounds still, even after the instrument's been around for three or 400 years, you can still find ways to make new sounds on this. And not just for the sake of making new sounds, but like something that's relevant. Well, to recreate this music in a different setting was really important to us because, you know, we felt like there's a whole generation gap of people at classical music concerts that, that didn't hear this music. And it's not because they weren't alive. It's because it was never presented in a way that was accessible to them. So if we're playing a classical music audience, you know, 20 years ago, you know, and the, the audience is something like the age is like probably average, you know, 60 to 85 years old. Well, they were alive when this Radiohead music was written, but they weren't listening to that radio station, right? Mm-hmm. They weren't, you know, wearing a, they probably not, didn't get into grunge or whatever <laughs> came after it. You know, they were just like, what are the kids doing now? Um, but the minute you take it and you put it in a, in a context that they can understand, which in this particular instance is a, is a classical concert hall. And they're sitting down, they're listening, and there isn't a bunch of stuff going around. People aren't like, and there's no mosh pit. Um, <laughs> all, all of a sudden, they they say, hey, we we like this. What is this about? And, you know, what's funny about it is the reason why we started doing these, um, aside from the fact that we really like the music, but it started out with some Led Zeppelin. It started out as a challenge because, you know, someone we used to play on the streets outside in Aspen, we were students, and someone one day said, play some Skinnerd, you know. <laughs> and I was like, no, I'm not going to do that, but the next day we'll, we'll bring some Zeppelin. So um, <laughs> so we started playing Zeppelin, and it turned out it was like a fun thing to do, and people never heard it before, and, uh, at least back when we did it, I think not so much, right? Um, and so we started programming on concerts, and we, would, we were a little sneaky about it at the beginning, so... We do a program that was like um, would have Mozart on it, and would also have like these compositions by these these other composers named uh, you know Robert Robert Plant and and James Page, you know, <laughs> and uh, so forth. And when we did the Radiohead, it was you know by Johnny Greenwood and Tom York, you know. Mm-hmm. And what would happen is we play these concerts, and w- we did this because we we wanted to get young people into the concert hall. We wanted to get people our age, our contemporaries. And this is when we were like, you know, late 20s, early 30s, maybe early 20s. I don't know. We said, there's no one our age at these concerts. And we love this music. We think other people would too. So we would program Led Zeppelin and Radiohead to get people, young people in. And the funny thing is, is that we did that. We got young people in. They And the immediate feedback the young people gave us were, hey, how'd you like the concert? Cool. I've never heard of that Mozart thing <laughs> tell me about that because that was definitely the and the the piece by uh barber you know we play the barber adagio they're like that is the best thing i've ever heard in my life and i was like well you're yeah, happy to talk to you about that and then all the blue-haired ladies came up and they would say i've never heard of that those composers robert robert plant and james page how come i've been i've been alive for 85 years and how come i've never heard of this music it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning, you know, the Duke Ellington principle. Look, mm. there's good music and then there's all that other stuff. Okay. So, you know, we're going to play good Mozart and we're going to play the good Radiohead and we're going to present those on the same level because that's what they are. Mm. Um, and, you know, it was a happy accident, you know, in some ways because we were trying to get young people in to listen to that stuff. And they came in, they wanted to listen to the old stuff. The old people came in to listen to the old stuff and wanted to listen to the new stuff. So, at that moment, we said, hey, maybe we should think about recording some of these. That's great. That is great. You know, the, uh, Brian and I somehow, even though we're the right vintage uh, to be really into Radiohead, that was somehow fell off our radar for both of us. Uh, so with the exception of uh, Paranoid Android, which I knew very well, 
I was not terribly familiar with the originals of mm-hmm. these songs. And so my first couple of listens uh, of, uh, of this, of, of the Sybride five album um, was much like listening to outliers where I was like, Oh, these are really interesting contemporary pieces. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, like that's the, that's kind of the point of the whole thing is to like, get us out of this. Well, I like this and I like that. And I hate this kind of music. Well, yeah. I bet there's some good in all of that. The everything in its uh, right place album, uh, I, the the way it's it's done, it really distills down what is what is universally musical about those songs, which I I, I really appreciate. And I was going to mention that the, my experience with Paranoid Android uh, was uh, Brian and I were in a, a band in uh, in high school, and our bass player uh, Will uh, was a huge Radiohead fan. And when uh, he celebrated his 40th birthday uh, several years back, he came up with a set list of things we we're going to play at his birthday. And I got uh-huh. the sales. I had to learn all the tunes. And one of these Uh-oh. tunes on there was Paranoid Android. And I was like, Radiohead? I don't really, I'm not really into Radiohead. So right, right, I right. learned this tune. And so I discovered a bunch of things. One is that it's really hard to learn Radiohead tunes, uh, even if it's, if it's more in its original format. The other is I had to kind of break it down. And I swear to God, at the time, this is how I looked at it, into movements. Yeah. <laughs> kind of have like the A, B rock movement that it has like that groove thing. And then it has like the adagio. So, yeah, there's a chorale in the middle. Chorale. Yeah. And then it goes back to the scherzo or whatever the ending yeah. groovy thing is again. And I remember actually mapping it out for myself, it kind of in those terms. I was like, we do it, which, let's work on movement number two again. <laughs> I'm, I'm having trouble with that part. Yeah, I mean, and that's, I mean, frankly, like for classical musicians, if that's what you want to call us, I mean, that's a trick that was very attractive to us. That was like, oh, here's music that kind of is organized in, for lack of a better term, um, somewhat symphonically, you know, in that a symphony's got four movements and, you know, usually, you know, fast, fast, uh, s- slow scherzo and then fast again, or fast scherzo, at, or which is a, you know, dance, right? Um, and then, uh, and then slow before the last one, which is usually big and fast. So, you know, seeing that scope, I mean, it's exactly what you said is a hundred percent right. And yeah, it's, it's, if all you're used to doing is playing, you know, one, four, five, one and four, four, or, you know, you know, three, four, then yeah, it's going to be pretty tricky because, you know, they throw that seven, eight measure in there as mm-hmm. much as they want to, to make it, to make it interesting. Um, but they don't just keep doing that the whole time. So for us, like that was exciting. And I have often, I often, at the time I was think I was listening to Radiohead. I was also really into Stravinsky and mm. I don't know if you're familiar with Stravinsky's music, but a lot of it is um, it's a, what I would, you know, they're layered compositions and, there's something that uh, uh, something he uses called ostinato, which is basically a repeated uh, rhythmic pattern that's kind of kind of stays throughout the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And I really feel like there's a some of the rate music of Radiohead has got similar aspects, you know, incredibly complex layers. And usually there's an ostinato there. There's like something that keeps going that keeps the whole thing together. You know, Weird Fishes is a good example of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and the other thing that was really important is that I've always liked popular music and mainstream music. Um, you know, like my favorite, you know, singer-songwriters like Neil Young. But mm. I always, um, you know, when we were coming, when it comes time to play instrumental music, um, there has to be something there that's, if you can't do the words, because oftentimes the words are the most important thing, you know, in a Bob Dylan song. You know, it's not necessarily the chord change, right? Um, or a Neil Young song or something like that. Um 
you can't do the words, so the music has got to be a lot better. I don't know if that makes sense. It's got to hold its own. Yeah. So whenever we chose a Radiohead song to do, it had to be with the the expectation that the music would stand for itself without the lyrics. In other words, the point of the music still gets across without the lyrics. thing we wanted to ask about is um, the new album, Live from New York at Sybarite 5, seems to have some social commentary on it as well with the Coltrane tune, Alabama, about the 1963 bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church, where have all the flowers gone? Is that something that you guys include in banter from the stage or or is it just kind of put there as a as a letting the music speak for itself? I mean, I, you know, I will say that, you know, at Sybarite 5, we believe that Black Lives Matter and we have, you know, we're very kind of public on our um, on our website presence that where we have links where people can learn more about organizations to support social justice. And those things are important to us. Um, you know, uh, more often than not, we're, pre- we're presenting the music and letting it speak for itself. Um, you know, Where Have All the Flowers Gone is an arrangement that was written uh, shortly after Pete Seeger passed away. Mm. And that was like, I think 2014, sound about right? 2014, 2015? I think, I think that's right, yeah. Yeah, so that was that was, that was was written, um, you know, he died and we played a concert of not that long afterwards, maybe maybe just days afterwards. And Laura Metcalf, our cellist, her father, Steve Metcalf, is a pretty darn good pianist and arranger. And he said, if I did an arrangement of a Pete Seeger tune, would you guys play it at the concert tomorrow? I said, sure. So we did, and it was a tribute. And then, it, you know, as time changed, look, it became very relevant again, I'm sorry to say. Mm, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. it really did. So we started playing it more and in different places, and, uh, you know, it ended up being, a, I think, as a bonus track on this album. Coltrane's Alabama, I've loved, that, I've loved that piece for as long as I've been studying music, you know, for at least 20 years, um, maybe more, maybe 25 years. I've always thought it was a great piece. I've always thought that that would translate. Mm. to an ensemble a classical ensemble which is frankly something that's kind of always in my brain because it has to be um and uh i actually been begging the group to play this piece for years yeah is it timely now unfortunately yeah it it completely is timely and when we decided what music videos to make um this was one that we wanted to make you know it's important to be a part of that conversation um you know it's a it's a beautiful piece of music it's like a rhapsody uh if you don't know Coltrane's Alabama, you should. Yeah, um, you can know it for social reasons. You can know it for musical reasons. Both of those things are good, good reasons. Yeah, well, Sybarite Five's uh, rendition is uh, is is chilling. It's it's a, it's a very uh, effective um, 
eulogy mm-hmm. as it was conceived. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. I mean, if we can be a part of the conversation and, you know, maybe someone hears the song and they, they really like it and they don't know anything about it and they do some research and they learn about it and maybe it opens their mind to a new perspective on something, then, you know, I think that's about as much as any, any artist in the world could hope for. Thank you for listening. Craft Brood Music, both the podcast and the streaming service, has the mission of promoting this music and these artists. We can't do that without ears on the music. So if you like what you've heard here, we're going to ask two small favors. First, tell someone about the podcast. Secondly, go to the App Store or Google Play, download the Craft Brood Music app, and try a free two-week trial of the streaming service. For more information, visit us at craftbroodmusic.com. Thanks again, and see you next time.